name is Charlie Johnson, and I'm thrilled to welcome all of you to the first episode of Untangled, a podcast on technology, people, and power. The point of the podcast is to dive deeper into the topic I explore in my monthly newsletter. So if you haven't yet, please go to untangled.substack.com and subscribe. In my first newsletter, I wrote about how power operates in crypto. After writing the piece, I wanted to better understand the role of governance. Is it adding to the concentration of power or helping to democratize and diffuse it? Are there models that actually lead to more equitable outcomes? How do the economic incentives of any crypto project constrain or shape its governance? I'm thrilled that Nathan Schneider joined me on today's episode to grapple with these questions. Nathan is an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's the author of many papers. Most recently, he wrote a paper entitled Crypto Economics as a Limitation on Governance. I highly, highly recommend it. This, dear listener, is a wonky, weedsy topic, but Nathan helped make clear why it's so critical that we dive in and try to understand these issues more deeply. If you like the conversation, please do all the things that make it go viral, share it, rate it, review it. I'm so grateful to Nathan for doing the show, and I'm so grateful that you're here to learn alongside me. And now, on to the show. Nathan Schneider, welcome to the first podcast episode of Untangled. It's awesome to uh, initiate this with you. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start by defining a key term that we'll use throughout this episode. What is crypto economic governance? Crypto economics is a neologism, a kind of coinage of the blockchain world. Uh, and it, it, it signifies the combination of uh, cryptographic math and, um, and computer science that underlies uh, a lot of these systems. Um, and the economic incentives. And both of these combine to make, for instance, Bitcoin secure. It isn't just that there's a lot of fancy math going on there, but also that, um, that there is a strong economic incentive uh, that prevents an actor from manipulating the system. For instance, somebody could have um, gobs and gobs and gobs of Bitcoin and control half the system and actually um, break the security of it. But if they were to do that, um, it would hurt their economic standing. It would, it would probably cause the system to collapse and they would lose their, um, their investment in it. So there are all sorts of ways in which these kinds of um, designs rely on this combination of economics and cryptography. And we see that um, slide not just into the protocol level, but also into how communities are being designed in the, um, the online organizations being created through blockchain technology, where, where in lieu of um, having a firm sense of, of uh, people's identity, being able to rely on um, legal enforcement that we rely on very heavily in most of our organizational lives and in corporations and nonprofits, all sorts of entities, um, people are relying on these economic incentives. Do good thing, get tokens. Do bad thing, lose tokens, right? And um, this reliance is in some respects very powerful and has led to some really creative organizational design. Um, but you know, it also has limits. 
Could you share a few examples to help folks get a sense of how this plays out in practice? So for instance, um, one case is around, um, is around dispute resolution. Uh, in you know, offline life in the United States of America, where I live, um, we uh, uh, have this concept of trial by jury. Uh, people uh, uh, where there's a dispute or where there's a criminal case, uh, a jury may be called to decide the um, uh, uh, decide the outcome of the case. In crypto economic juries, um, rather than that kind of coming together, you can't do that in online in the same way. You don't have a reason to trust all these anonymous users. Instead, you try to, in the kind of prevailing systems, you stake your own coins to participate, uh, your tokens, and um, you stand to receive a reward for, um, for choosing what you believe other jurors are also going to choose. This is a, a concept in game theory called the shelling point, and it's used to, um, to, to, to produce what appear to be legitimate outcomes um, not using a sense of duty in the common good, but instead relying on the economic incentives of the participants. Another example is around voting. So many different kinds of blockchain systems have different forms of voting. It might mean you know, voting with what kind of software you're running on your servers. Um, it might mean actually um, signing a, a, a contract to, to vote with a token. Um, and it might even involve some financial payment. Um, but this has been, um, you know, in some ways, a space of, of incredible creativity where a number of you know, new kinds of voting systems are available. Um, for instance, the ability to delegate your vote to somebody else. This is, you know, not something we can do in, you know, in, in kind of conventional democratic uh, voting, uh, at least in, in a political system. Or, um, uh, uh, or systems that calculate votes um, like uh, in, in, in creative ways, like quadratic uh, voting, which, which takes into account how many tokens you vote, but it's not a linear relationship. So the more you vote, the less each additional token counts for. Or um, uh, a model like a, a conviction uh, voting system where uh, where it actually matters how long you choose to vote for something, you choose to stake tokens in a vote, um, as opposed to how many tokens you stake. Uh, both might be valuable, but they could cancel each other out. If somebody has a lot of conviction about something, but not a lot of tokens, they could cancel out somebody who does have lots of tokens. Um, so one way or another, you know, the politics there becomes also a kind of, a kind of subset of economics. Uh, under a crypto economic world. Okay, so crypto economic governance is essentially using economic incentives to shape group behavior and the governance of a project. Why does any of this matter? Why did you want to research these issues? Yeah, uh, for me, it started uh, with a, a convergence. Um, I got interested in crypto first back in 2014. Um, I had been reporting mainly on social movements. I was a journalist at that time. And I was on my book tour for my book about Occupy Wall Street. Um, and at that time, I was you know, very focused on this question of, 
okay, 2011 had been full of of this craving around the world in these uprisings from the Arab Spring to the global Occupy movement um, for deeper democracy. Those encampments had been cleared. What would be the fate of that craving for, you know, as the, the Spanish movement said, real democracy now? Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and, while I was on the tour, I stopped in San Francisco and a, an old friend um, who was a kind of early adopter and kind of leader in that, in, in that space told me about this thing that had just come out, this white paper about, this, about Ethereum. Um, I'd, been, I'd heard about Bitcoin, of course, like through, there, there were some people floating around Occupy, for instance, who were into Bitcoin. Um, and I wasn't really interested. I wasn't interested in like, I'm not a, kind of, uh, you know, gold standard type, you know, as, the, you know, the, the types of people who got attracted to that stuff. Yeah. Um, but the side of Ethereum that was like, okay, we can build new kinds of organizations that felt like, okay, this could be a, a space where some of that energy might um, be able to grow without needing these encampments. Um, and so I got really interested in that project early on, followed its early development, and um, have been just fascinated about how can we build this kind of next phase of democracy that we need so much, um, uh, uh, that is much more deeply responsive to, to people's needs um, on, you know, with these kinds of tools. And, and in the course of that, of, of the years since, it's been this kind of roller coaster ride, right? Where on the one hand, there have always been people involved in that space who share that aspiration of a kind of a kind of future civic society. But then there's also a very dystopian side of it, in which um, everything, every you know, activity of our lives is guided by economic incentives, um, where where the economic features, which are at the core of these systems too are the thing that dominates our lives. And meanwhile, there is this side, you know, the, the people in that space who are, who recognize that like, we still want a space for human relationship. We still want to be able to trust each other. We still want like the good things about um, uh, uh, the things that you can't quantify. Right. Um, and so, so this work uh, that I've been doing over the last year on uh, in this space is, a, is really in the, in one sense, a kind of letter of admiration to all that has been accomplished here. I mean, this world is really where people are reinventing democracy. Like there's a new voting system being invented every week. That's not right. happening elsewhere. And it's really exciting. On the other hand, there is this deep danger of, you know, it's also in a, a system where a financial system is being built before anything useful <laughs> is being built. Um, do we really want, you know, to enter into this world in which finance is the is the root of everything? Um, and so, I've been bringing just some kind of old concerns and critiques about um, a society built on economics and nothing else, and trying to to offer kind of a reminder about, um, you know, about how creating healthy, you know, communities with these kinds of tools, you know, will require. Um, you know, will require something more than than economic incentives alone. 
what are the possibilities and limitations of crypto economic governance? So the potential is this ability to have kind of social Legos, you know, to, to be able to um, break out of some of the, the bad habits that we inherit from, you know, the 18th century. And, um, and, and once again, make um, democracy a site of creativity and invention. Hmm. Um, and to be able to rapidly iterate and create organizations that are fit for the needs that we want them for, um, you know, to design, yes, those incentives, the way we really want to design them for a particular case, rather than relying on, you know, whatever incentives are built into a Facebook group or something. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that is, you know, thrilling to see that actually happening, that that thing that I hoped might happen when I first read that white paper, to, to a significant degree is really happening. People are really coming to the, these tools with that creativity. Um, the limitations are that when we can only, when our systems can only handle the things that we can quantify, the things that we can tokenize and represent as a token, um, we run into a profound danger. I mean, for the same reason that Wall Street isn't helping us solve the climate crisis, right? Because it can't see, you know, the, the fact that its incentive structure is destroying the planet. Um, you know, we run the risk of, of having that kind of logic, that kind of robotic economic incentive logic take over even more aspects of our lives. And that's why it's just so important, I argue, not only for a kind of broader social um, uh, purpose, but actually for the purposes of that people in this, you know, crypto economic world are trying to create for themselves. And so one of the things that makes this work easier is that lots of project, lots of, you know, thoughtful people, you know, building crypto systems are recognizing these limitations already. Um, and, and so what I've been seeking to do, you know, over these years is, is to try to surface those rec that, that recognition, put it in a in a picture um, that you know that, that challenges some of the some of the mythologies um, in in that space. And um, so, for instance, people are recognizing the danger of Pluto, the danger that when when everything is based on money, people with lots of money have way too much power. Um, yep. People are re recognizing the limitations of you know things that. Of, of being unable to recognize things that are really valuable, like labor, you know, community building labor, relationship building labor, the kind of stuff that is never going to be on chain, so to speak. Hmm. Um, how do we make sure to value that? You know, that incorporates that kind of old and really essential feminist insight around, around invisibilized labor. Yep. Um, and, and how do we make sure that things that are of value um, to, to human beings um, of all sorts that, that aren't going to be represented on a token anytime soon can also be part of how we govern our systems. In the paper, you argue that we should integrate political logics into crypto projects. What would that look like? So, you know, I mean, politics here in this very kind of, you know, I draw on Hannah Arendt there, very kind of like Aristotelian politics as detached from 
you know, from the economic politics as speech about the common good, right? Yep. Um, and and so I introduce a few different mechanisms um, uh, again that I'm not making up that that are floating around in this in this um, world to begin with. Um, one is space for for government regulation. You know, that's an ongoing conversation. Governments are one space in which there is some democracy in some cases, um, and these can <laughs> help introduce some, you know, certain values and protections. Um, one thing actually that, you know, government regulation has actually encouraged is the decentralization of power in, in, um, in crypto projects. It's kind of forced them to, to decentralize power more than they otherwise might. Um, and, and there are certain ways in which you could, um, you could see those kinds of external forces being helpful. Um, on the other hand, I'm not, I, I, I'm most interested in what, what these institutions can do um, outside of terrestrial, you know, of, of territorial governments, because, you know, part of what I think is most exciting about these is that they really introduce a, a plane, a layer of government, of human self-governance that is not territorial and um, is not based on which country you happen to be a citizen of. And um, I don't think we want to lose that. You know, I think we want to build governance that, you know, that really does um, operate at a different level. Um, and so, uh, you know, one legacy I draw on is the legacy of cooperative business. Um, it's something I've studied a lot and worked in, um, but it's it's a pattern of, of organizing that builds in certain economic incentives, but also democratic incentives, like ensuring that governance occurs at the level of the member, one member, one vote, rather than, you know, how, how many shares you have. And um, those kinds of, that kind of balancing is a longstanding tradition that I argue that crypto um, projects can learn from. And what's exciting to see is that they actually are. I mean, more and more, we're seeing um, token systems incorporating as a legal cooperative or drawing some inspiration from cooperative practices um, that, you know, go way back. Um, and then if, um, another component is uh, to make central space for values-based um, uh, uh, decisions and, and um, concerns. So rather than creating systems where the only shared value is the share, you know, is the token price, um, instead to create systems that have at their core a certain set of articulated values and where the crypto economics serves to enforce those values. So I look at a DAO called um, OneHive, a you know, token community. Um, it's very economics driven. You know, you get rewarded for all kinds of little acts of participation, but there is a, you know, natural language written constitution that they call a covenant um, and if somebody violates that, you know, they, you know, stand to lose tokens. Um, and that is not an expression of just financial maximization, it's an expression of values. And so it enables the, that community to, even though it's got a very vibrant economy, to make sure that that economy is ultimately accountable to non-economic values. What's an example of a crypto project that is meaningfully drawing from the values of the cooperative movement? Yeah. So, um, for instance, here in Colorado, we've had 
we, we have uh, a, a lot of these kinds of projects starting to grow compared to, compared to elsewhere, just because we have a history of having really good cooperative laws and great cooperative lawyers. Um, so I feel very lucky to be to be in this in this space. Um, and there are a couple of projects that are paired together with a common founder. One is called ETH Denver. It's a the, one of the major international Ethereum conferences. Um, and then Opolis, uh, which is a um, it's a kind of a gig platform for for workers um, uh, who are contributing to to uh, crypto projects um, initially, but it, it can do much more than that. And both of them have been incorporated as cooperatives. Um, and what this means is that, yes, there's a token, you know, for each of them. Um, they're distributed, you know, in, in out to participants who are using these systems um, and in many ways look like a conventional token economy, but the underlying governance for them, where they interface with the legal structure, is more of a cooperative model where you have a kind of one member one vote structure so you have a blend you have that economics based token economy and you have that that grounded kind of legal structure that that is able to steward that token economy with a bit of democracy and that's in some ways like the classic liberal dream right the, right. the idea that you wrap your your capitalism in in democracy we never quite achieve it, you know, um, but but in certain respects, it's not a bad dream. The idea that a market, you know, should enable kind of economic winners and losers, but the rules of that game should be determined in a way that has the common good at heart. Um, and, and, you know, that could happen at the level of the project. Um, it could happen in that, in that legal level, or you could see it in, in the context of a system like, um, uh, like Gitcoin, another Colorado project, uh, a very you know globally significant Ethereum project, which uses a, a voting mechanism called quadratic voting, um, and and what quadratic voting does is it is is it calculates the the power of a vote in a way where yes you can pay more for more voice, but um, the more you pay, your power actually starts declining. Um, so, so, so there's a balance between your willingness to pay more and the need to have more and more people also, um, you know, vote in your way or contribute um, in, in your way. So there's a balance between the power of smallholders and the power of large holders, um, and, and that kind of balance, you know, I think also um, uh, has a kind of resonance with the cooperative tradition. I can see why a crypto project might choose a cooperative model if they're working from a blank sheet of paper, but I have a harder time imagining existing projects changing to a cooperative model because it would almost necessarily mean that early token holders would have to give up some of their power. Do you see examples of that shift occurring? Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of it comes, you know, out of just the need to um, to solve like day-to-day -day governance problems. Um, you know, these are still largely participant-governed communities, and um, and even if there are large investors in in the mix, you know, in some cases those investors are recognizing, you know, our power actually works against us because it generates resentment from the people who we need to be successful, who are contributing day to day. So they're actually giving out their voting power, um, mm. and. Uh, and and exploring systems that could you know enable more shared ownership because they're recognizing 
you know, our success, our financial success as investors in this project depend on, you know, all the other participants feeling, feeling like they have a voice. Hmm. Um, and so, so we're seeing, you know, even, you know, for instance, a, a new fund called Variant Fund, um, which I've been in conversation with over the years, um, you know, they are explicitly looking to the cooperative model as a way of, of designing investment deals. Um, they're not using formal cooperatives, um, but they're, you know, they're recognizing they have something to learn from this tradition. Um, you know, similarly, you know, with, I've been working with, um, uh, with the Gitcoin project that I mentioned earlier, um, and they have tokenized their project. Um, they were exploring doing it as a cooperative, but they couldn't make that work with their investors at the time. Um, but now they're having to figure out how do we do governance? And we're having a lot of conversations about the cooperative legacy. You know, what are the things that we want to learn from there? And also what are the things that we really want to advance on? Um, you know, I, I, in addition to these crypto projects, I also work with, you know, large cooperatives and startup cooperatives. And, you know, I think the cooperative legacy has a lot to learn from, you know, what's mm. going on in crypto right now, because a lot of co-ops have forgotten their old superpower, which is lateral relationships among members. Um, and, and more of that is happening in crypto sometimes than, than in co-ops. And so I think there's a real, you know, there's an exchange, there's a give and take um, between these two, you know, these two kind of currents. Hmm. Are there any regulatory proposals that would address concentrations of power in crypto, but wouldn't undermine some of the things that you see as valuable about it? Yeah, um, you know, I mentioned you know, what what the SEC has already done, which is this this kind of concept of sufficient decentralization. Um, which is in some sense, you know, could be regarded as like an antitrust law for the, you know, for the crypto economy. It, it basically says if you want to have a securities exemption and basically not have to file boatloads of paperwork for your, you know, token, you need to make sure that, you know, that, that the ownership of that token is, is widely distributed um, and that you're not actually controlling a company. Um, uh, under the guise of, of this. And that, you know, is an example of, I think, a very positive intervention um, from the, you know, the political world to say, okay, you know, if you're going to do this, at least do what you say you're doing. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that, you know, that, that kind of the ability of centralized forces to, to help, uh, to, to, to prevent new forms of centralization for emergent uh, is something that I think is really important. Um, you know, I, I argue, I have an earlier paper called Decentralization and Incomplete Ambition that, that argues that um, new forms of centralization are going to emerge unless we design, you know, for them intentionally, usually by creating intentional centralization. And, um, and I think governments can play a role in that. Um, you know, another component I think is to learn from that legacy of the cooperative tradition, where if people are participants um, in a in a shared enterprise in cooperatives, they're able to be co-owners, they're able to buy shares in a way that you couldn't with other kinds of early stage businesses. And I think, you know, um, encouraging that kind of participant control is really important in this space as well. Sure, you can have investors, um, but 
as much as possible, you know, we could de design the capital system in a way that, as the cooperative tradition has, where labor is renting capital rather than capital mm. renting labor. We have the opportunity in these with these tools to 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 give another go at that, you know, to recognize that this this model of of you know the the wealthy controlling everything and handing out crumbs to to everybody else, you know, doesn't have to be how we do these things and actually works against our ability to really empower people and create a you know a democratic economy. And um, you know, and so so if we make sure that and we design the the regulations around this stuff um, in a way that empowers creators um, uh, and 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 makes sure that they're at the center of projects. Um, you know, I think we'll, you know, we we have the ability to, you know, create a much more dynamic system than one in which we just allow the kind of reconcentration of of capital power. There is such a, a sort of barrier to entry to like understanding the world of crypto like even the language that's used it's like learning a whole new dialect in order to <laughs> sort of understand There's a lot of memes to learn <laughs> a lot of memes to learn a lot of new words how do you think about sort of like the distribution of power and the sort of ideal of a sort of more egalitarian or more cooperative relationship among peers in the context where there seems to be such a divide between sort of like those who are participating in crypto and those who aren't. Yeah, uh, this is definitely um, uh, an issue. It's always an issue with kind of new technology and and new economic regimes of, of any kind. Um, and uh, you know, on the one hand, it's it's kind of an endemic and and generally what happens is the market figures out a way to um, uh, to create more user-friendly tools, more accessible tools. Um, I, I think it's worth um, imagining that that we um, you know also develop non-market strategies for doing that. You know, for instance, that you know the kind of famous story of the um, of the French Minitel system, you know, where the French government actually created a, a system that incentivized, you know, people, ordinary uh, people, to to bring computers into their homes way before it was happening in any other country, because it was a you know a public infrastructure project. Um, it may be that there's you know a reason for you know for if we decide this is an economy we really want to grow and develop, you know maybe we should as a as a society decide we want to help invest in in to tools that make it accessible for more people. Um, there are also uh, projects out there in this, in this community, in this um, kind of so-called space um, that are really trying to figure that out as well. Um, you know, again, I've, I've mentioned Gitcoin a few times. It's a project that is kind of a, a grant system um, designed to create public goods. They, it's the language they use. Um, and, you know, a lot of that is around the sense that unless we build the kind of tools and interfaces and, and experiences that that non-technical people will want to be part of, um, you know, we're going to be stuck. And so in some cases, the ecosystem itself is kind of recognizing that need and, and building toward it. But it's, you know, it's kind of inevitably a, a challenge. 
Um, but it also it also raises the question, I think, a profound question of justice in this space, which is, um, you know, is there a danger in these tokenized economies where early adopters get rewarded so much that you know they're essentially robbing, you know, the, right. the later adopters who will be forced into these technologies, um, and and I you know I think that's a really um, hard one. I'm not sure how best to answer that, but I think it's something that you know, these communities need to grapple with much more seriously. And, and, you know, for better or worse, there is right now a tremendous incentive for early adopters to see this grow because they stand to, you know, um, see kind of ungodly upside. Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum, wrote a response to your paper. When it comes to the limitations of governance, where do you think you and Vitalik agree and disagree? It's a good one. I mean, I don't want to. Um, I don't want to speak for for Vitalik. I mean, he's he's uh, someone who you know I first met in 2014, and I've come to admire a lot as a as a thinker, as someone as a listener, you know, yeah. as someone who who um, you know is comes to this you know crazy world with. You know, largely curiosity and um, and a kind of and a sense of you know kind of creative problem solving, um, and you know I think he has a bit more faith in the kind of possibility of, of the of crypto economic systems to solve some of these problems, um, and in some ways he has to because he, unlike me, you know, is that's the tool that's before him. Um, and uh, and that's the kind of the tools he he has with right now, um, and you know I think he is also very committed in a way that you know more than I am to building a kind of autonomous future system on this on this. Um, I think I'm more willing to accept that you know that that older forms terrestrial governments like still have an important role to play, um, but but. Uh, you know, I appreciate the fact that, you know, one can kind of lob these kinds of interventions into these communities and, and you know, there's a lot of, um, and it can provoke useful discussion. Um, you know, it, it, there, there are some really kind of yucky sides of, of, the, um, of the crypto universe and, you know, a lot of that's on display and, you know, news articles about it and, and you know, Bitcoin Miami and all these sorts of um, sure. you know, these extravagant sides. And, and I, you know, that stuff I kind of um, bristle at intensely, but um, there are also these communities where people are, are you know, have that kind of thoughtfulness and curiosity and, and um, have, have um, you know, developed some, you know, some interesting uh, rationales. I, you know, I think also he's, he comes at it as a system designer. Um, as an engineer first, you know, I'm a little more, I think my orientation first is, is around like, how can we build solidarity and power for people? Um, and I kind of started the people first. Um, and uh, that I think inclines, inclines us toward, you know, different emphases and different priorities. Um, I'm interested in, you know, in solidarity. Solidarity is hard to put on chain. <laughs> you know, and, so, and so he'll say, okay, that's not a useful concept. Well, 
no, solidarity is a useful concept for people. People have used it to fight for, you know, for, for better wages and for conditions and for their rights for a long time. I don't want to lose that, you know, until you can prove to me you've got something better. What does a optimistic version of governance look like? And what does a pessimistic version look like? Um, I think a, an optimistic version is, you know, a world in which um, we no longer see democracy as this declining old beast um, uh, that is, you know, falling apart across the world and instead see it as a vibrant source of creativity and imagination and, um, and reconnection with, with our ancestors and, and a wider range of traditions of human governance. Um, and uh, uh, where, where um, we start having, you know, breaking apart some of the reliance on this nation state system and start being able to build connections and relationships and, you know, co-governing communities where we need them to be. Um, where where self-governance is just so much more a way of daily life. Um, and we, we also learn how to do it in a way that it's easy and it mostly doesn't, you know, where, where, you know, we're not necessarily having to go to a meeting every night, right? <laughs> um, uh, the, the pessimistic version, I think, is one in which, um, in which we lose faith in our, in our ability to govern ourselves, and we transfer that responsibility, you know, to digital systems and to economic systems. We decide, okay, human beings can't be trusted. Um, with their own fate. And um, we need to engineer um, economies in which they will be nudged constantly to carry out um, uh, common purposes. Um, and we um, instead get a kind of system of overlapping, you know, um, technocracies uh, in which we are essentially living at the service of, of um, you know, both mechanized and non-mechanized kind of automatons from, a, you know, from a stock market to a, um, to a, you know, a, a smart contract. Um, and, and where things that, um, you know, that, that you can't put on the chain, you know, lose their value. Uh, we, we lose our ability to, you know, recognize uh, that kind of value of even human life. Um, because um, because it's not a metric that we're looking at. Um, so it you know it, and, and there are seeds of both of these things um, very much at work in this world, and it's a reason I found it a you know a, a, a productive kind of place to work. It's just it's full of tension, and it has mm. um, these kind of profound dangers and these profound possibilities um, uh, lurking in it at, at the same time. Given those two realities, like what would have happened to either sort of kick off the the more positive orientation or the more negative orientation? Like, what do you see as the sort of like consequential sort of forks in the road that are ahead of us? It's hard to know. I think it starts with culture. <laughs> you can't predict the future. <laughs> well, it, it, it really, culture is important and it's why I you know, I believe in the value of writing and having conversations about this stuff. Um, yep. Because, because um, you know, as much as crypto is about technology, it's also built on a culture. You know, 
Satoshi Nakamoto didn't just introduce, you know, the Bitcoin white paper and the technical spec, but also framed it in all this sort of like institutional skepticism and libertarianism that has seeped into the culture of participants in a very profound way. Um, and, and, you know, in some ways I, you know, I, I see, you know, my work and that of others is trying to, you know, recognize that that should not be the only culture we have available in this, uh, uh, in this kind of uh, space. And then there's a lot more floating around. There's a lot more possibilities. Um, and, um, and so that's really important. And I found, I've seen over and over that when you build culture, um, it shifts the sense of what people want to be spending their time on and want to be building. And, um, and that really matters. Um, second, I think regulators right now have a really critical role to play. I think it's really akin to, you know, the the um, moment 1996 when the, you know, infamous Section 220 was introduced or 230 was introduced. Um, you know, the same moment that John Perry Barlow was writing his Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace. You know, all this kind of right as this technology was starting to go mainstream, and um, and you know that that introduction of a of a law that, um, in some sense, granted some independence uh, to cyberspace, um, is really important in 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 creating boundaries around this you know this new space, enabling it to flourish, and also producing some of its um, helping to produce some of its profound you know, problems. And you know I think once again governments have an important role to play in. Um, in introducing some very kind of careful, um, you know, limiting structures, um, but also enabling structures, you know, that enable the creativity, um, but that make sure that we are prepared to confront the, you know, the, 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 the inevitable um, uh, uh, problems that are going to arise in the midst of that creativity. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, I don't, have I don't pretend to have a kind of policy prescription there, but I think we we really do need to uh, recognize that it's both that this is you know a, a space of tremendous um, uh, dynamism that that you know we can benefit a lot from enabling and encouraging, um, but we also need to be very very ready to um, to confront um, what could be extremely dangerous um, forces arising here. Is there anything that you were hoping to talk about that I didn't create the space for you to share? A, a real central focal point of my work in, in recent years in this, in this um, realm is a collaboration called the Meta Governance Project. And, you know, we're working both in kind of crypto context and outside of them. So really thinking about the future of self-governance online um, wherever it finds, wherever we find it. And we've been building tools, starting to develop prototypes um, toward that end. And, um, and, and as in that community, I just want to emphasize, I think the bigger story here is not like the crypto technology or the tokens or, or whatever. I think it's this question of whether we are going to be able to move from this this web two regime of, you know, large corporate, you know, monopolistic actors 
essentially controlling our online lives to a, um, a world in which self-governance becomes possible and normal and is built into the tools that we use and is part of our daily online lives. Um, and that um, is not something that depends on, you know, whether you're on crypto or not. Crypto has opened the door for a lot of that stuff because it's the first time we have technologies that kind of demand participant governance in a way that older, more server-focused technologies don't. They, in some ways, demand central control. Um, but but uh, this is something that, this is a question that's not limited to crypto. And, um, and it's something that we should be asking everywhere we go, um, rather than the question that we hear much more, which is, what should government do? What should Mark Zuckerberg do? What should be done from the top down? I would love to hear us ask much more. You know, how how would we build, how would we design these spaces if we had the power to do it? Whatever tools we're using, um, how would we introduce self-governance um, uh, to the point where it becomes a habit, to the point where it becomes um, just a normal way of life and where we can solve the problems that we face ourselves rather than waiting for um, for for some kind of magical engineer from above. Thank you, Nathan, so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.